Radio Prague International, the external service of Czech Radio News. Prime Minister Petr Fiala begins his visit to Ghana. Czech teachers' unions threaten a day-long strike over salaries, and a man is charged with starting last year's devastating forest fire in Bohemian Switzerland. Czech Prime Minister Petr Fiala began his visit to Ghana on Wednesday, which will be the third stop on his tour of sub-Saharan Africa. Mr Fiala left for the Ghanaian capital Accra in the morning from the Kenyan capital Nairobi. The Prime Minister, who is accompanied by a large business delegation, was originally scheduled to spend the day in Nigeria, but the Nigerian government cancelled the visit at the last minute, citing inability to provide adequate reception. The main part of the Prime Minister's programme in Ghana is scheduled for Thursday, when he will be received by the President, Nana Akufo-Addo. Mr Fiala will also launch the Czech Ghana Business Forum and is expected to meet with members of the Medevac mission. Teachers' unions in Czechia have decided to hold a day-long warning strike of primary, secondary and kindergarten schools, scheduled to take place on November 27th. The trade unionists are seeking more money for the education sector next year. Education Minister Mikuláš Beck told them that he was continuing to look for ways to strengthen the budget and offered them further negotiations. Mr Beck has previously said that teachers should get an average of 2,500 crowns raised in January. According to the law, the average teacher's salary should reach 130% of the country's average gross wage. However, the calculation will be based on last year's wages, so it is estimated to be at about 113.5% of the current average. A 36-year-old former volunteer guard has been formally charged with general endangerment and damage to another's property for starting the largest forest fire in Czechia's history in Bohemian Switzerland last year. The same man also set fire to a lookout tower and seating areas in nearby Decin in April of this year. The defendant, who is now in custody, has partially confessed to the crime, but his motives remain unclear. He could face up to 15 years in prison. The fire, which took 6,000 firefighters 20 days to extinguish, broke out near the Czech-German border on the night of July 24th last year and spread to over 1,000 hectares of forest. The Senate has approved extending the training of Ukrainian soldiers in Czechia until the end of 2024. Defence Minister Yana Chernochova told senators that Czechia's priority was to ensure that Ukrainian soldiers could continue to be trained in the country, as this would contribute to ending the war as soon as possible. On Wednesday, the Senate also approved the extension of most Czech military foreign missions for next year. Activists from the environmental organization Greenpeace protested outside the Ministry of Agriculture on Wednesday morning against the felling of old-growth forests in Czechia. Some of the roughly two dozen protesters climbed ladders to hang a banner from the ministry building which read the Ministry of Cutting Down Old Forests, as well as putting paper helmets on the heads and models of chainsaws in the hands of the statues above the entrance to the ministry building. According to Greenpeace, old-growth forests are important for maintaining biodiversity and preventing climate change. The head of the campaign said that over 21,000 people had signed a petition in support of saving Czechia's old forests. The descendants of the Czechoslovak politician Josef Šicl, a close associate of T.G. Masaryk, have called on Culture Minister Marcin Baxa to declare their ancestors' historic Prague villa a cultural heritage site. The villa on Petrin Hill is currently having demolition work carried out on it in order for a new house to be built there instead for a secret investor. Czech news site Deník N writes that the investor's identity is hidden behind a tangle of 16 offshore companies based in Cyprus. The Czech Building Authority approved the demolition work despite the objections of the Prague 5 local government and the National Heritage Institute. Residents from the local neighbourhood in Smíchov have also started a petition against the demolition of the villa. 
And finally, a quick look at the weather forecast. Thursday is expected to be overcast but dry, with daytime temperatures ranging between 6 and 12 degrees Celsius. My name's Anna Fodor, and that's the end of the news. But stay tuned for a closer look at some of today's top stories. Hello and welcome to Radio Prague International, the external service of Czech Radio. I'm Amelia Moleschmidt. Coming up in today's program, a group says threatened Prague Rail Bridge can continue in its present form. A Czech group is helping to protect lions at the Kamazi National Park in Tanzania. We'll tell you more about that. And Czech enthusiasts are building a replica of a Viking vessel. It's Wednesday, which means we're back with another installment of the Region series. This week, we'll bring you the story of a famous personality from the Olomouc area in our feature report. All that's coming up, so please stay with us. Debate is still going on over whether to knock down Prague's Vichyrad railway bridge. Some interested parties say it may only remain in place if it is expanded from the current two tracks to three. However, the group Nuborat, Don't Demolish, on Wednesday presented data on the bridge's capacity that they say proves even that change is unneeded. Ian Willoughby spoke to Nuborat's Pavel Storch, who is a Green Party politician. The owner of the bridge, the railway administration network Prava Železnic, is pushing forward with uh, their plan to demolish the bridge. And what we have shown here is uh, that this decision isn't fact-based because uh, one of the most important claims that uh, there would be a capacity problem and third track needs to be installed isn't uh, necessary. Well, if that's the case, why are they pushing for the demolition of the bridge if it can be continued to be used in its current form. If you are an owner of an old house, uh, you can have basically two attitudes uh, towards this house. Either you are tired of all the repairs, all the scares, all these discussions with the heritage protection agencies, or you are a proud owner of uh, this beautiful piece of history and you are trying to use and uh, the, pot- uh, the commercial potential of the house on its particular place to renew it and you are a proud owner uh, of it. Do you and your group think that the Ministry of Transport will use the pretext in mm-hmm. your view of the need for a third track to knock down the bridge? I don't think it's a solely a question of Ministry of Transport because we are in the most uh, heritage-protected specific area of the World Czech Republic in the very uh, center of Prague, which is one of the biggest uh, reserves uh, of UNESCO in whole world. I think what needs to be done is a table where the municipality of Prague, the Ministry of Transportation and the Ministry of Culture sits together and search for a solution. What do you say to the suggestion that the bridge was deliberately allowed to fall into great disrepair simply as a, as a pretext also for removing it? I think we have hundreds of examples uh, where heritage-protected objects are severely neglected by private investors, but this is an example where the owner is a state authority. And there are huge flows of money into renewal of uh, railway infrastructure as an environmental uh, positive solution. In the video you showed before the presentation, a couple of celebrities Mm -hmm. compared the bridge to the Eiffel Tower Mm -hmm. 
in Paris. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? It's definitely a bit of exaggeration, but for me personally, it's much more interesting. While we have here a riveted structure, which is used in Paris just for tourism. So it's what we have in Prague with Charles Bridge. But what we claim is we can have here a riveted structure which can stay in service for railway service and be a beautiful part of the city. And that was Ian Willoughby with that report. A group of Czech specialists have teamed up with conservation workers at the Kamazi National Park in Tanzania to track and study the movement of lions. The team placed trackable collars on selected lions this past October in order to collect data that will help conservation workers protect them. I spoke with Michal Stasny from Dvorkladovi Safari about the initiative. The group of our experts went to Tanzania, Komazi National Park, to equip lions with radio collars. And data that they will collect from these collars will definitely help to protect the whole species and also prevent, which is most important actually, the human-wildlife conflict as Of course, Mkomazi is a part of a big protected area for wildlife. Uh, however, this area, as many others in Africa and other in uh, anywhere in the uh, in the world, are still under huge pressure of humans, and therefore, human and wildlife conflict is uh, becoming a more and more important issue for wildlife protection. So this was the mission for the beginning of uh, October, and now the data are being collected. Also, uh, the team of experts joined with uh, their collaborators from Tanzania actually collected some tissue samples like hair uh, and skin samples uh, to examine uh, these samples and find out what the genes are of the lions and also to find out some more information about the parasites. So there are loads of data being collected, loads of data that, that are going to be super important to protect the whole species and also to help protect the whole area of Mkomazi National Park. Tell me a little bit about how collecting this data is going to protect the lions. What's the desired outcome here? Well, it is necessary to be said that Mkomazi is a huge area joined to Savo National Park in Kenya, and therefore it is not very easy for the scientists to know how lions use this area, where they walk, how do they uh, actually migrate, and this information is crucial for effective protection of the species. Of course, we need to know where the lions go, where they hunt, what they do, how the packs are composed, uh, and other information to be fully able to understand their needs and also to find effective ways to protect them. And I'm curious because, of course, you know, keeping these lions protected is important, but what what would be the potential threat that could be posed if this work isn't done to protect this species? Of course, lion is a species that is apex and that is most important for the whole environment. And as that, we really, really need to know every single information. And we need to say that lions are a, a target of poaching, of course. But besides that, a human-wildlife con conflict, meaning lions attacking people or their livestock, might uh, cause potential problems. And these situations have already occurred 
in Kwamazi and also in different areas of Africa, of course. So if we do not know and if we do not uh, find ways how to protect the species, the whole population or subpopulation in East Africa could be threatened. Uh, but really, we need to get as many information as we can to be able to find some conclusion on what would be done or what should be done to protect the whole species. That's really interesting. I didn't know that it not only just affected the, like the animal ecosystem, but also people living in the region. Oh, definitely, very much. Like every single protected area is surrounded by uh, cities, villages or communities, if you want. While some live in peace with these animals and more and more communities actually find out that if they protect their wildlife, they can get some income from uh, wildlife tourism and people that are just interested in beautiful wildlife and nature. Uh, but on the other hand, living next to these magnificent creatures can pose a lot of problems. Uh, so we have to help the people to find their ways to live with wildlife peacefully and actually, if possible, to take some advantage of protecting their wild neighbors, I would say. And that was my conversation with Michal Stasny. A team of enthusiasts from Oslavni near Brno are building a replica of a Viking boat from the 12th century. The 8-meter boat is called Gislinga, after the Danish village where the original was discovered, and should be launched in the spring of next year. Ruth Frankova has the details. The remains of the original Viking vessel were excavated by archaeologists in 1993 in Gislinge, a village located on the reclaimed Lammerfjord. Analysis of the timber established that the boat was built around the year 1130 and it was most likely used for fishing and transporting both goods and people. A team of enthusiasts from the town of Oslavane in Moravia are now completing an exact copy of the Viking vessel using local ash and oak trees. Daniel Juricek, one of the members of the team, says he decided to build the replica of a Viking boat after a trip to the Baltic Sea, where he got to sail on a Viking vessel known as the Drakar. I've been interested in boats since I was a child, but at the time there was no internet and I had no idea that there were people in Northern Europe who were building a replica of drakars and were even sailing them out to sea. The original Viking vessel was nearly 8 meters long and 1.5 meters wide and had a cargo capacity of around 1 ton, the equivalent of 4 men and 10 sheep. With a draft of only 25 centimeters, it was able to ply both the shallow waters of the fjord and the waterways leading into and out of it. Mr. Juricek and his two friends have been working on its exact replica for the past three years and are now nearing its completion. When we started, we thought the ship would be finished in a year, but we can only work on it one day a week after work. So it has taken longer than we thought, but now there are really just a few things missing. To build the replica of the Viking vessel, the men are using a plan provided for free by the Roskilde Museum near Copenhagen, which focuses on preserving and promoting old crafts. They are learning the art of shipbuilding as they go, combining old and modern working methods and tools, explain Roman Vrana and Daniel Juricek. 
My teda máme takovou jako kombinaci myšmaš jako na té lodi, protože ten Our boat is a mix of different woods. We used a 200-year-old ash tree which was felled here in Oslavany to build the stern and the tip. Špičky na těch na těch lodích, takže špička a záď jsou z jasanu. To právě dostali ten obrovský kmen, který měl 80 cm v průměru. That's right. We were given the trunk as a gift back in 2019. A year later, we found a tree for the keel. It's an oak that we transported here from Velké Pavlovice. The replica of the Viking boat should be completed by the end of this year and if everything goes according to plan, it should be launched on the Oslava River in Oslavany in the spring of next year. And that was Ruth Frankova with that report. Just a reminder, you're listening to Radio Prague International. It's Wednesday, which means another installment of our region series, which is our feature report today. Vincenz Prisnitz, the founder of modern hydrotherapy, was born in the Almuts region. He founded a spa near the town of Jesinik that successfully applies his curative methods to this day. Daniela Lazarova and Vitpohanka have this story. Priznitz was the son of a local crofter and an unusually talented young man with great intuition, observation skills and common sense. From his first attempts at healing animals and himself, he was able to move on to treating the injuries of others and eventually established a world-renowned hydrotherapy spa. At the age of 16, Vincenzo was seriously injured when a load of wood fell from a horse-drawn carriage and crushed his chest, breaking several ribs. The doctors at the time offered little help with what was then considered a severely debilitating injury. Their treatment, a combination of leeches, hot compresses and rest, produced no results, and so Vincenzo started treating himself. The chief archivist of Jesenik, Kvietoslav Krovka, explains. A on to udělal naprosto opačným způsobem, tak jak to viděl vlastně v přírodě. Byl svědkem... He went in the opposite direction, according to what he saw around him. He observed how injured cattle were treated, that the blacksmith would clean the wound with cold water and apply cold compresses. That is something that goes back to ancient times. Today we also apply a cold pad when we have a headache or a burn. So he just applied those ancient wisdoms. He aligned his broken ribs with the help of a chair backrest and then persistently applied a self-treatment of wet bandages on his injury. Within a year, he had recovered completely, a feat which at the time was considered nothing short of a miracle, and people from within the vicinity started seeking him out for help with their ailments. In 1819, the young Priznitz was treating people in his hometown of Grafenberg, a hilly area which is today a part of the town of Jesenik. At first, he treated family members and people from the neighborhood who occasionally paid for the service with their produce. Soon, people were coming from further afield, and he would find a place for them to stay on neighboring farms. Kvetoslav Krovka says he soon saw the need to establish a proper facility where he could house and treat patients. 
A rokem 1822 vznikly skutečně lázně. In 1822, he added a second floor to the Prisnitz family house and started receiving patients on the ground floor, where he installed two wooden washtubs. His cures worked, word of his ability spread and his clientele grew, enabling him to expand further. In 1826, he bought a house across the road which he reconstructed into a medical facility and in 1839, he basically established the groundwork of the Yesenik Spa as we know it today. When he started, he had five to six patients and in 1839, he was treating 1,500. In 1839, there were 1,500. However, the road to success was not without obstacles. Although word of Prisnitz's medical skills spread quickly and people came from far and wide to be treated by him, his practice faced stiff resistance from rival doctors and healers who did not welcome competition. As part of a smear campaign, Prisnitz was even accused of witchcraft and shortly detained in the local jail. In 1838, he finally obtained official permission for his operation and started developing his business in earnest. On nepřistupoval k člověku jak lékař. Lékař prostě. He approached his patients differently from other doctors of the time. He did not give them medicine and send them off. He carefully listed their names, their problems, diagnosed them and decided on curative procedures, which were conducted under his strict control and guidance. Na základě té pevné diagnostiky stanovil léčebný postup, jak má probíhat. The early spa treatments included bathing, scrubbing and applying wet bandages, but the basic principle was the same, alternately exposing the body to cold and hot water. Aristocrats were soon joining the ranks of simple farmers as spa guests. Regardless of their social standing, all patients had a tough daily regime. There were very strict rules in Preznice's spa regarding diet, drinking and the procedures themselves. The latter were accompanied by a so-called labour therapy, during which, to warm up sufficiently, patients would be required to shovel snow or leaves or chop wood. If someone went against these rules, they had to leave the spa immediately. Still, simple folk or nobility, they trusted him and were ready to do his bidding. Kvietoslav Krovka says that those whom he treated regarded it as a privilege. Tak byla to především šlechta, která jsem přijížděla z The clients were mainly nobility from today's Poland and Ukraine, but also from Austria and Germany. Not everyone could afford the Priznitz spa treatment. His treatment took time, time which clients had to spend at the spa. The spa's day was not 21 days like today. The treatment could take months and even years. And in later years, after the establishment of Czechoslovakia, the VIP guests included members of government, for instance, Foreign Minister Jan Masaryk and his sister Alice, and many leading entrepreneurs. communist period the spa did not develop but it was not closed down or destroyed and after the fall of communism in 1989 it could build on its tradition and flourish. 
Today, the Prizny Spa Resort in Yesenik is one of the country's most frequented spas. It's very successful in treating respiratory diseases as well as mental disorders and diseases of the circulatory system. Some things have changed since Prizny's day. Guests are no longer made to chop wood, and neither are they thrown out for drinking alcohol. But some of the founder's original methods, such as the hot and cold baths, are still in use, and the spa treatment is still combined with the benefits. Of spending time outdoors, the clean natural environment of Yesenik remains a key component of the spa treatment. Due to his natural intelligence, persistence, and common sense, Vincenz Brisnitz, son of a local crofter, made an indelible mark on his hometown, and his healing methods are still in use almost two hundred centuries later. And that was our feature report on the Olomouc region. And that was our Czechia in 30 Minutes program for today. If you have any comments about today's show, then please send them to us. You can contact us by email at english@radio.cz or on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be glad to hear from you. This is Amelia Mola Schmidt signing off, saying thank you very much for joining us and goodbye.